Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is David Duchovny, who is, you know, one of our great, uh, you know, showmen, really, and artists. I mean, this is somebody who uh, everyone listening, David, knows you. You know, they know your work as an actor and or they read your books or listen to your records. Your new album, Gesture Land, came out this week, uh, just a couple days ago. And um, I'm really glad to get the opportunity to, to talk to you today, man. I'm, I'm happy to get to talk to you as well. I, I, I felt like I've been knowing you just tangentially for, for a number of years now. And I'm, I'm happy to sit. And, and even though our first substantive conversation will be recorded and consumed, uh, it's still a step in the right direction. It's true. Well, we had some substantive text combos. Well, uh, well this is what I was going to say, man. It's been fascinating to me because... Uh, although you and I are not friends, you're good friends with my wife, Amy Koppelman, who's a great filmmaker and, and writer. And so for a long time, um, as, as I'm sure you've heard stuff about me, I've heard stuff about you and, and feel like in certain ways I know you. And then I'm, in certain ways, I'm really curious. So um, yeah. yeah, I'm glad we're going to get to do this. And like, uh, and it was so fun texting with you about books this week and sort of in exactly the way Amy said you and I would... Uh, get along with one another. So that, that was really fun. Um, and we'll get to talking um, about books, but in sitting here and thinking about you and about the way you present to the public, reading some articles about you and the knowledge baked in from like all the conversations I sort of have here walking through the kitchen when Amy's talking to you. I was thinking about this weird Willy Wonka quote, you know, at the end of the movie when Wonka says to Charlie, you know what they say about the boy who got everything he wanted? He lived happily ever after. And like, I don't know about that because <laughs> there's this Kabbalistic uh, parable that speaks to just the opposite and and presents that if you're in a situation with uh, nothing pushing against you, it, it turns out you're in hell, not heaven. And and it seems to me that you've wrestled with this idea. So uh, talk, just talk a little bit about about how you see that that question of uh, arriving at a place where the only obstacles are, are the ones you, you you have to generate in, in order to feel some kind of progress. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, oh, that's such a, that's such a good question. It, I want to answer it in as many ways as I can. Take as much time as you want. Yeah. I don't, but my first response is, you know, and I'm sure you can relate to this as a, as a writer, as a director, as an artist, is... You know, the, the idea of ever getting what you want is, is foreign to me. Like every time I have an idea, every time I take a job, every time I do anything creative, it's, it's never that first spark, you know, oh my God, it could be this, it could be that, it could be everything. And it could still come out well, but it's never going to be that thing that you, that you, that divines. Well, that, that the, yeah, that's the Kierkegaard quote at the beginning of Salinger, right? That you, you as the moment you start, the pen does something and you're fucked. Right. So, so, but but you can replace the pen with with anything that I do. So, so the idea that I have to create any kind of friction to me doesn't—that's not true. I mean, the friction is always just like this game that I'm playing between, you know, trying to. It's like it's as cliche as the old man in the sea, right? Like I'm, I have this idea of this great shark that I caught or created, and then depending on the business that I'm taking that shark to, you know, people are going to nibble at it, nibble at it, nibble at it. It's like I bring it home a carcass or 
I just don't have what it takes to bring that guy in right now. So it's, it's all that shit. And then I think also my aesthetic is, is uh, my personal aesthetic is like, don't show the work. So I'm always trying, I'm always trying to come off like I'm not working, you know? I mean, that to me, that's what, I don't want to see you working hard. I mean, I, I understand, I know everybody's working hard. I don't want to see it though in my art. I don't want to see the hard work. I want, I want to see the ease. I want to see the naturalness. And, and I guess that's, maybe that's like a pose that I do, but I think it probably alienates people. You know, like, oh, that's easy for you. No, buddy, it, it's really not, but I, I'm glad that you think so. Because that's what I'm going for. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I can look at various aspects of your work and 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 then and all of our work and see yeah. whether we pulled it off or not, right? But but I want to draw some distinctions. Um, because in the Hemingway story, separate from in Moby Dick, in the Hemingway story, that dude needs to go out there and fish, yeah. and the fish haven't really been. Right. It's been a lean time and, and he has to go out and make this one more try. And he doesn't need to go try to grab something that big. It's true. But that's just what he happens to hook into. And so he allows himself to dream. Right. That he can transcend uh, his situation. But 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 there is something in the restlessness of of you as an artist, because on, on the because in, uh, on, in the terms in which we normally talk about this stuff, you know, you've been number one on the call sheet of more things that have been successful than most people ever. You had two television series that are zeitgeist kind of shows. Your books, unlike the typical actor's thing, your books are taken seriously. And it does seem that you have a hard, to me anyway, that you have a hard time enjoying that or accepting it or settling for it. Yeah. And that there's still a restlessness afoot. Yeah. So and, and that, so that's you know. D- d- well, here's here you're right because here's what I did this morning because I'm not really I I want to have an idea that I'm working on. I have a few things that are like at different levels of completion, but I really want that focus of the one thing because I really enjoy that when I can be focused on the one job, whether it's as an actor or a musician or whatever. Um, and I just was, I got up early and I was going to get coffee in my kitchen and I just said, be hungry, be hungry, be hungry. Just get hungry, get fucking hungry again. Because I was like, I wasn't feeling hungry for something, you know? And I was like, yeah, it's all, it's always about like being hungry for something. For something. Well, you, where's that? Yeah, so that's right. I mean, you're right on it, right? Uh, but where, do you have any idea of, of the loci of that? Like where, where's, where does that, where? Where's that come from? I think, you know, maybe it's just that I've never found the uh, God, you know, I've never found, yeah. you know, the place where I go, this is, this is, this is the place. Here's the place. And even, even with successes or, or stuff that was extremely exciting or, or stuff that was well-received or, or, or whatever, uh, never have felt like, all right, all right, I, 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 I can rest in some way, or, or I'm here, or I'm here, and uh, never felt that way. I don't think I've ever felt that way. I mean, for more than an afternoon. 
It's so fucking American and so New York, isn't it? Like, I, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Just so fucking kind of just like baked in somehow in a way that is, it frustrates me for myself too, that like what, where that sort of need to have a drive uh, comes from, as especially as I get, you know, you're a little older than, I think you're like one basketball generation older than me. <laughs> so we never played against each other. Like you played against guys that I want, who I watched play were older than me at my high school. Um, but, uh, you know, as I get, I'm 55 and I, uh, there's a, there, there's a, a way to look at all this where it's like, well, why keep pushing so hard? But I, like you, I wake up and I have to. There's a few, there's a few, I think, answers because I was just talking to, um, I don't think she'll be upset if I mention her name, Amanda Pete, because she has the chair. Show's she fantastic, was, by the way. It's fantastic. And, and I said to her, she was saying, what is wrong with me? I'm 50 years old. Why do I need to, why, why do I need this? Why do I need approve, the approval or whatever? And I said, yeah, you can look at it that way. I mean, I mean, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is, it's, wow, you're 50 years old. You still want to play. You still want the ball. You still want, yes. you know, that's, that's a life lesson. That's a beautiful thing. And it's like, for me, I just, I, I like the game, not the game of show business, but the game of making stuff, the game of like, you're sitting there, you have something in your head, you wrote it down, you went, you got these guy and this guy, and now you're going to make it. You're going to do it in eight days. It's fucking fun. Yes. Yeah, that's it's totally fucking fun. And but it, it's also, though, involves turning yourself inside out and taking certain risks. Have mm -hmm. you gotten more comfortable with taking the risks or were you always comfortable with taking the risks? I think I was comfortable taking risks in a certain way because I was I was I was in graduate school for English literature. Yeah. So I was I was on a path that was fairly well, not not set in stone, but, it, you know, I could have had a career in, in, a, in a, as a professor, I think, and that would have been comfortable. So I was heading that way and I didn't start acting until I was like 25, six, seven, which is kind of late to yeah. start something that you're going to try to make a career out of. So I think there's a certain kind of either ignorance or stupidity or bravery in that. And then I think some, you know, you know, some of my choices have been hamstrung by concerns with money. I mean, because I didn't come from money and I liked making it. It was like, it felt secure. Sure. I like, I like, so I think there's, there's certain things that I've done that weren't great choices that were motivated by the fear of, you know, no yeah, money. That's not, that's not what I'm asking you about. Cause you're past that now. I mean, you, you, yes. Um, even in our business, even in, in, in our business, even wealthy people are, I under, are worried about money. Like I understand that. Um, but, but, you know, it's not the same. You're not going to be forced to make a no, no. a movie because you want uh, one more million dollars than you could get by doing some other movie. Do you know right. what I mean? That, that's not right. really going right? to right. drive right. your decisions. Right. Because part of what I'm trying to understand with you, that, and it's the thing that's so impressive about you, but that I also know must be one of my son's friends speaks 17 languages and like really, <laughs> and, and, uh, but you know, and at a certain point, it, it at a certain point, it was like uh, something he really leaned into everybody knowing. And then at another point it became like, you know, I'm a lot more than the fact that I speak 17 languages. And yeah. so 
for, for you, the whole polymath thing, which you are or true polymath. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I'm also fascinated by your ability to focus in the way you describe, because I'm someone with really substantial ADHD. And for me, it's so hard to everything that I've accomplished, like the, the sort of the ways in which I have to turn myself inside out to get work done are, are um, mind boggling uh, to me. It's so hard. Well, it how, feels how like do you, you have this ability to, to say it again. How do you do that? I have to. Um, I can only work on shit that I really want to work on. That's one way to do it. Like, so that's part of why I had to choose this for my life, because school books that I didn't want to deal with, David, were like radioactive. Like I could read a 900 page novel in a night and a half because I loved it. But a 30 page dry history article it was like it was radioactive. So that's one. Two, I have to find exactly the right music. I have to get the right music going. I have to have exercised. I have to know, and I have to give myself the space and time. And then I can just like blast off for a period of time and I lose the world. And then I come out of it and I'm totally fucked up and distracted again, but it's torture all the time. But it seems to me with you, uh, you're able to hyper-focus widely. Like you said, you can pick a mission and, and do it. And was that always the case for you? Um, when, when you were a kid, did you notice it about yourself? Um, I don't know if when I was a kid, certainly as a student, and, I, and I'll draw a distinction between us, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm envious of you in this, in, in this particular instance because what I think I learned how to do is um, I can throw myself into my assignment regardless of whether I like it or not. Yeah, I can't. And I, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a positive. No, no, I really don't. I don't but think it's positive. I'm so jealous of it. My whole life I've been jealous of it. I, I, I want some of what you got, which is like, you know what? I got to say no because I'm not feeling it. Whereas yeah. I'll go, I'm going to say yes because I'm going to feel my way into it. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to figure out why I'm saying yes before I say, you know, I've already said yes. Now I got to figure out why. And that's not necessarily a great thing for me. But how do you feel? Why? In what way do you mean uh, working on projects that you didn't necessarily have that spark, even as an actor? Right. right. Where, where you just you knew that your core competency would allow you to do it, even if you weren't turned on by it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Because somebody said, oh, this is a good idea to do or. I'll give it a, I'll give it a more lenient interpretation, which is I'm trusting my spirit or whatever. Like it's saying yes to this thing. Therefore there's going to be something there down the line that I'm going to find out why I did it. And uh, well, it can be the case too. It's just, it's just like a, a, an inchoate feeling of, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm not sure why, but I just feel like doing it. And usually if I'm lucky, it'll bear out that, yeah, there was a reason. I just didn't know it yet. Yeah, inco, it's one of my favorite words. I'm so glad you used it. People look it up. If you don't know it, it's a really good word. It's usually used uh, with anger next to it. David used it in a great way. Uh, yeah, you know, what I started to realize, because, you know, as you get deeper into all this stuff, you have a, met, a, a level of, of craft. And so, yeah, you can find your way in. But I realized in any of these artistic endeavors, and that's just another reason I'm fascinated, because I can tell in the stuff of yours with which I've engaged, that's yours, books, music, stuff that you're really, Californication, X-Files. 
But when you're when I'm if I'm working on something that's not reflective of my point of view, my my enthusiasm, with, which leads to me having a point of view, I'm only then using my craft and my intellect. And then I'm really not different than any other fucking smart guy. I, I'm not I am not being an, engaged as an artist because that has to for me, I need the point of view piece. I need the piece that makes it. Oh, that's why this one's going to work, because Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not merely a craftsperson who's smart enough to find a way to use professionalism to muscle through. In the end, I I, I hate the things that I've done that have that aspect, and I I don't I haven't for a long time fucked with it. But that's a le- do you think that's a lesson most of us like? I think most of us learn that and then have to then make it. De- Once we learn it, we have to then make a decision about <laughs> how we're going to follow through on that knowledge. Right, right, right. I. I completely get that. I mean, it's like I'm looking at something right now uh, to do, which isn't like a big, uh, it's not like an onerous responsibility. It's a couple weeks on something. It's not going to. Sure. But I like the people and, but I'm looking at the part and I'm thinking, you know, any, I think so many people could do this part and I don't know what I'm going to bring to it. Like I, I, I wouldn't cast me. I wouldn't cast me because I don't know. I mean, but that doesn't mean I can't do it. It doesn't mean I won't do it because like I'm saying, like maybe, maybe there's something there that I'm to learn. Well, yeah, it, just because you can't see why they would cast you, but if you can find your, yeah. that's fascinating. So how do you yeah. think through that? Because I can, I just had this combo with someone on, on the show I'm doing on Super Pump, not Billions. I was talking to an actor who's a friend, you know, I'm pretty friendly with. And I said, only do this thing if you're going to show up excited to do it. I want you to do it. And I hope you want to come hang and the hang will be great. And it's great people. And you know it's fun and you know the thing is fun. But if you can't, I said it. I said, if you can't find a way to make this alive for you so that you're going to be happy coming through the gates, I don't want the favor. Don't do it. And I I, I, I fully fucking meant it. So what happened? If they could find their way in. Uh, actually, there were two, because uh, um, this thing is an ens- a true ensemble. Like there are three kind of huge parts and then it's really an ensemble. So I said it to two different friends and, and one came and did it and, and one didn't do it. And it, it's perfect, actually. Uh, the, the one who did it, I'm, I know better. But, but it was a legit thing where both, I could feel both were going to do it to work with Dave and me, to be in mm-hmm. our, right. our company. You know what I mean? Not our, not our friendship company, you know, to be, yeah. people, to be in our company. But I was like, no, 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 you have to be alive to it. So how do you think it through? Can you find your way to be alive to it, right? I would have to. I mean, if, even if I didn't find that way when I said yes, <clears throat> I know when I showed up on set, I'm, I, I cannot be the guy who doesn't want to be there. I've seen those guys and I've hated them uh, when I've worked with them. Nobody wants to work with a guy who doesn't want to be there. So I'm never going to be that guy. Even if I really don't want to be there, I'm going to try to get there, find out, the challenge of it. Obviously, I'm challenged by it. Like when when I'm saying I don't know what I can do with this, that's probably a good challenge. So I like, agree. So I, I'm I'm going to get there, and I'm going to if I do it, I'm going to like. Well, there's something for me here to figure out. Even if it's just like the the fucking, I'm going to be a workman, you know, because I'm a man of my word, and I I told my friend I was going to be here and I was going to do my best. So I'm going to fucking do my best. And there's nothing wrong with that. I can go home at night. I can put my head on the pillow and go, you Oh, well, that's a total way. Yeah, that's a total way in. If if a friend of mine who I'm creatively, who 
who I think is great, wants me to do something to help them out, I can, I will find my way in for the same reasons you're saying, in a real way, because it's like, oh, well, the magic that's then going to happen as we're working together will create this third thing. I mean, the thing I'm talking about. And then I'll go like off to the the angle of that, which is, you know, I'm even just thinking here now, the character's a little like that. He's like, he's a go along to get along guy. You know, he's- That's great, yeah. So, you know, maybe that's my way in and maybe, maybe that's what this is all about. This is what I mean, it's like, I don't really make, like I'll make decisions, but my decision making is really wacky. And it's a lot of the unconscious stuff and it takes me a long time to figure out, oh, 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 okay, I think I know why I did that now. So sometimes when I watch you, like I remember the first, the Soderbergh movie you did with the massage table thing, right? I remember when you showed up in that movie and there was a joy that was palpable to me that was so different from the image of who you were. I didn't know you then and Amy didn't know you. It was a very long, you know, it was a long time ago. Yeah. I remember sitting in a theater. Stephen showed me that movie like right before I think it it came out. I remember sitting in the movie theater and thinking, God, that guy is so much better than I thought he was because there was so much light. Now, I felt that shift made a huge shift in, in, I guess maybe the Shandling thing was before that, but the two things showed me, and I think a lot of people like, oh man, this guy, when he's into a thing and when it's challenging in a certain way, he comes alive on screen. And the, there was a kind of presence you had that I just remember being so attracted to it as an artist. like. Well, That's fucking awesome. You know? Well, I can just say, you know, like with Steven, I mean, I one of my first auditions ever was for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I didn't know that. Yeah. And obviously I didn't get the role, but um, I first movie I did, first time I ever was on the screen was in a movie called New Year's Day, a Henry Jaglin film. Oh, yeah. And Steven is friend, friendly with Henry, I guess. And Steven wrote Hen, uh, Henry a letter after seeing the film saying, you know, I auditioned David for... And I really liked him and this, that. And I was so uh, touched and happy about that. And then I was always like, ah, I wish I would work with Steven. I wish I would work with Steven. And then finally he called one day out of the blue and he's like, ah, I got a movie for us. And it's like, you're, you're like the center of the movie. And I was like, ah, finally, we're going to do it. And then it turns out like, yeah, I'm the center. I'm like the center who kills himself, and I'm, you know, like in the big chill. But um the thing about that is, is it's exactly right. I think what happened to me, like in terms of, I mean, I don't want to like slag my own performance road, but I think there's a certain kind of, and you may run into this with, with you know, you don't want to name names either, but there's a fatigue that comes into like, I'm doing 25 episodes a year of X-Files at some point, you know? And yeah. um, I think that spark uh, is, is low. You know, and that has nothing to do with, of course, media, with the material. It has to do with, uh, of course, the humanity. So, I think you know there were there were times when I I was I where I didn't find I didn't find the way to spark myself. You know, I, and I guess that is my job. And there's one thing, you know, like I always say this about John Travolta. It's like, yeah, I think he can be a great actor sometimes. Yeah, but I always like watching him. And yes. I, I was, why do I always like watching him? Because he's always having a good time, no matter what that fucking movie is. He he just he seems to love to be there, and that's really attractive uh, to watch. And it's even attractive, by the way, in a master like in in Philip Seymour Hoffman, maybe the best actor of our generation, yeah. right? 
that you could always tell no matter, cause like John is not maybe a great, maybe John's craft isn't, but like Phil was, you can't find a better technical actor than Phil. And yet right. I always got the sense, I didn't know him, but I always yeah. got the sense that he was so alive. And obviously you were fucking brilliant on, on X-Files, but it was such a tightly court because of what it was and because of what it required, right? It required sometimes this implacable thing, required a thing. Right. And then seeing you with Shandling and seeing you in Steven's movie, you got to be this whole different, yeah. uh, really different modality got to come into play. And it was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, you had Tarantino on recently and, and, yeah. and he's the directorial equivalent of Travolta for me. Yes. Because, you know, you know I, I like some of his movies more than I like others, but I always have a good time. And I think it's because he, somehow as a director, every frame, he, his joy is evident, like his joy in movie making. I don't know how that happens, but when you're watching his movie, I feel like this guy loves filmmaking. Well, this That's is really interesting because like um, you and I both cared a lot about the Knicks and <laughs> certain time. <laughs> But I always wore number 15 and you were always a number 10 guy, right? So to me, Pearl is everything you're talking about. Pearl yeah. was, and it's why he's my favorite basketball yeah. player of all time. Because, well, because he sacrificed himself, right? To, for, yeah. for the good of the team in a way that people, no one under my age knows about it no. or whatever. No. But because of what he was willing to sacrifice. But I would go watch that guy and Clyde was so cool. And I, and I understand how you pattern yourself after Clyde in lots yeah. of ways. But Clyde didn't evince a great amount of joy in what he was no. doing. He was a businessman out there. Whereas yeah. Pearl was having the time of his life, right? Yeah. 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 So what drew yeah. you to Clyde? Why is Clyde, why was Clyde your guy more than, than Pearl was your guy? Well, mostly because Pearl came later. Pearl wasn't, you know, he wasn't a 69 there. Right. He right. Was yeah, no, no, he was on Baltimore. Yeah, he was on Baltimore then, of course. He was he was the enemy. Yeah. Uh, Pearl was like Pearl was like ABA to me. And I was torn between, you know, I was, you know, it was kind of given to me as a kid and us as kids. It's like ABA is fun to watch and shit, but it's not real basketball. You know, that's like it's 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 carnival stuff. And the NBA is like, that's the real game. And so I think I had a little of that, even though I love Dr. J, you know, and I love the Pearl. I was like, no, we're going to beat them with, with our plays. We're going to beat them. We're going to draw up our X's and O's and we're going to, we're going to hit the open man. And we're going to be the, the Dave DeBusher open man, Bill Bradley, Dick Barnett, New York Knicks. And, um, and you, when you played college basketball, the three point line was not, did it come in your last year? Or did it not come in at all? No, I one year and I didn't have three-point line in, in high school either. Okay. No, I knew that it wasn't there when you played in yeah. high school. So when you went to Princeton, did you go thinking you were going to play ball all four years? I wanted to. I mean, that was my going to college uh, probably this, you know, obviously getting an education, but second was I really wanted to play sport, well, both basketball and baseball for four years. It didn't work out at Princeton. And I was just talking about this today because um, I went, uh, when I was a senior in high school, 
my coach set up a, a tryout with Princeton for me to go play with them in the middle of the season. I was just talking about this today because this guy, uh, John Rogers, who is, he's known on the internet as the guy who beats Jordan one-on-one. You know, he's a, he, he's a businessman in Chicago, very successful guy. But anyway, he was, he was on the Princeton team when I went to go work out and coach Carrill put him on me. I wasn't a point guard, but he made me bring up the ball the whole practice and he had Rogers on me the whole time. So a buddy of mine was just talking about talking to John Rogers. And I said, tell him this fucking story. He doesn't know that it was me, but tell oh, him he doesn't know it was Dave company. That's so funny. Really? Yeah. So, um, I so did wait, that. what happened though? So you go up there your senior year of high school, this guy guards you and you do okay. Cause you make, I do okay. I mean, you know, like I remember Kirill saying, I, you know, couldn't get the ball from me, you know, right. So, but I'm not even a point guard. So I, I don't know what I was doing, but I was anyway. Um, <clears throat> so I decided that I could play there. And uh, when I got there, I, d- I didn't play there. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't make, I didn't get far enough to really, to really have a decent shot at it, you know? So um, that was really disappointing. And then baseball was equally disappointing. And I, it was real heartbreak. I mean, for me, that was really my identity, you know, as a, as a young man was really as an athlete, you know, and I had to kind of change that around when I was at Princeton. So you didn't play, you played freshman basketball. Is that what you played or what did you play? Well, I played JV and I, I probably suited up a couple of varsity games, didn't get any run, you know? Yeah. Well, I always think people don't understand how good Steve Mills was, but you're in a position to understand how good he was. <laughs> Steve Mills was my rival in high school. Right. He, so he was the guy I would watch his practices. He was at my high school. Older. I went to Friends on Long Island. So I would go watch Steve play. All Hello, the time. Friends? Yeah. Steve oh. was like a hero to me when I was a boy. You no, know, we beat him. We beat you guys. I'm sure you did. Yeah, Collegian. I'm sure you did beat us. Yeah. There was a guy named Sonny Marner, too. I remember, yeah, I remember the whole team. Pete Blodnick was another guy on it. I remember the whole, that whole team, those guys really mattered to me because I was a basketball fanatic. I mean, I played on that varsity team, but six years later, five years later. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't as good as you. I hardly played, but I made the team. I mean, I was yeah. a varsity yeah. basketball player, but not a good one. But, yeah. uh, um, but Steve, was very, Steve was really good. And I thought, you know, because, uh, I mean, I thought that I could compete at that level with Steve. Um, but when we got to college, he, he grew a little more than me. He, he was a little faster than me, a little bigger than me. And, um, you know, he played, he started for four years. Yeah. He was just that much better than me. Well, he just point. made the leap. I mean, he made the leap, you know, that's the thing that happens. Like you, it happened to you in your, in your chosen profession. It happened to him right. in, in his chosen profession right. where he was able to make, make the, but I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about how there's this received wisdom, David, that, the lessons we learned uh, on sports teams are these bedrock valuable lessons and mm-hmm. that, that uh, are going to shape us in, in, in mostly good ways. Mm. And I've, I've lately been wondering about it now, like uh, whether as I see how, how we organize in teams in ways and about things that we shouldn't all the time. And we have these kind of like team values and uh, like, you know, I played varsity basketball, varsity tennis. I'm still like really, really serious tennis player. Yeah. But I've been questioning like whether playing, for instance, play in pain. We learn to play in pain. Mm-hmm. 
Does it serve? I'm asking you, have you found that that serves you? In the end, does it serve us or not? What do you think? Well, first of all, I don't think tennis is a team sport. But it was in high school. It was in high school. But I know you're on a team, but it's like. Yes. You're, you're playing individually. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I think it's it, it may be different there. But yeah, I, I had a real like macho self-definition of, yeah, I was going to play in pain. I was going to. I. uh I told this story. I mean, I did like this meditative podcast. It was very interesting six months ago. But anyway, they wanted me to tell a story. I told this story about my senior year in high school. And I fainted in school and I, I fainted in the elevator and I hit the side of the elevator with my face and then I hit the ground with my face. I knocked oh. out teeth I and I woke up alone in an elevator in a pool of blood and was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. It was scaring me. I was scared because I, I didn't think anything would happen. Of course, yeah. you know, I faded, I knocked out teeth, but they put me in intensive care for like two or three days because they didn't know if I had a heart attack or something in my brain. And this is the middle of basketball season, my senior year. We, we, we were in the middle of a 27 and one year, right? right. So, Beating, beating your Logos Valley friends and all that. So we, uh, I'm in, I'm in the hospital, and this Latin teacher showed up, and he was a guy, was not like a big fan of mine. Like I, you know, I had, I had supporters at school because I was a popular kid and I was doing really well and a scholarship and like it was a good story and, and, uh, but he was always really hard on me, and he's the only teacher that came to visit me, and it was very odd to me. Sure. And, I was sitting there in that um, hospital bed, and my fit, you know, my, I was just swollen, like like a huge, my yeah. lips were all over my face. And uh, he sat down by my bed, and he just said, you know, you, you don't have to come back. Uh, and I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you know, everybody's going to want you to come back, you know, but you, you don't have to come back. Take your time. That's super cool. And I just didn't know what he meant. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, you couldn't process. even process it. Yeah, of course. I was like, and I was, I was on the court like five days later with a mouth guard and, you know, trying to play, but uh, it took me years to figure it out. And by the time uh, I wanted to thank him, I really did. Uh, he was dead. He died of AIDS. And uh, it's really one of the, most profound moments of my life because I realized that you don't get, you know, you don't get it in the moment so many times. And awesome. by the time you get it, the moment has passed. And what he saw was, you know, he saw a kid who was, you know, his parents had divorced a few years earlier. He was overachieving. He was working too hard. He was fucking himself up. Yeah. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing, but he was running fast. And this guy said, slow the fuck down, buddy. Think about it. And I said, what? No, 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 no. I'm never slowing down until I finally had to again and had to look at myself and go, you've been running since then. And now it's time to listen to that. Yeah, but man, do you, do you think you've really taken, on, taken the lesson on fully? And when I look at the way you live your no. life now, I don't think you've taken the lesson on necessarily. No, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but at least I know it. At least I know yeah, the sure. words. It's something. <laughs> no, I mean, it's so funny because I've never told this on the podcast, but you're really bringing this out to me. I'm just going to say it really quick because I want you to talk. But uh, I pitched a game. Uh, I pitched a game when I was 11, 12. I pitched uh, like six no-hit innings. And, mm. uh you know, they were seven inning games and I pitched like six no hit innings and no hit innings. And, and it was a pitch yeah. one hitter and, and won this game and then went out to hit uh, to practice the next day with a friend who, who hit, hit baseball at me with my back turned. I turned around, my nose shattered. The guy had to carry me home it was broken in three places, but my mother wouldn't let me play. And I, I never really pitched again. And it killed me like for a long time. So the other choice is terrible also. Like the either way, yeah. you're kind of screwed when the sport thing becomes your because I was and I flinched and I'll tell you what else I'm I'm a very very solid third baseman but it's so hard for me to keep my head down because of the fear of of my face getting smashed yeah. and this is why I start to think about sports yeah. it's so important to me too and whether these lessons of like sucking it up and pushing it down serve us oh well like. To answer like your initial question was like these values that we teach like playing and pain. Personally, I put I put value on it. I put value on self sacrifice for a team for a team uh, vision. Yes, um, I know it's tribalism. I know it can I know it can get into you know weird places. But oh man, I feel good when I sacrifice for my teammates. I feel I feel love. You know that's like a close feeling to about the most love I can feel for somebody who's not my family. Well, if you haven't found God, as you say, which and I'm yeah. into, then, then, then it's a really uh, worthy substitute in a way. It's, it's the communal goal that is, I mean, to me, that is God in a way. Yes, I understand, yeah, you gotta, but that's why choosing team, then, then you have to, you know, you gotta choose carefully. And that's going from project to project, you know, you get, I, I can get into these, I can find a good team again. It's like, I think that's what I look for. It's like, me too. I want, I want, I want to be in business with people who I want to sacrifice for, you know? And then the other side of that, that I think is so great about what we do. And I think it's something because we all join the circus and yeah. play on these teams. It's something people outside of it probably just don't know exactly, which is when you've really worked with somebody closely in this kind of thing that we do, you cannot see them for seven years. And when you see them again, you are that family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I got a text yesterday from a guy I made a movie with 17 years ago because something happened in the world that he knew he and I would both care about. I see this guy every five years. We did, but he wrote me and we got on the phone and it was like no time had uh, passed because this intensity of this connection that we formed. Right. Uh, well, also, I mean, especially in, in what you've been doing recently and what I've been doing primarily in my career is, is long running television. You know, that's really like, you know, you're talking X-Files is 11 years and Confirmation is seven years. That's that's a generation. That's a significant amount of time to spend with, with people, the same people. Dave and I were supposed to direct uh, an episode of Californication in either the really? second or last season. Yeah, Tom 
And Tom wanted us to do it. And we were going to do it because we loved the show. And uh, and then somehow it became suddenly like the last season. And then he just brought everybody back and, and called, oh. like, it's not going to happen. But I was really excited to, to before I knew you were going to do it. I really thought it would have been a blast to do. Um, Let's do it. Yeah, it would have been great. It would have been so fun. And I did love the show. Here's something I wanted to ask you about that show. With the first time you played a scene with Evan, because I kind of want to know about whether when this magical stuff, and it's one thing people are always interested in the chemistry in romantic things. Mm -hmm. But, and it's one of the things this podcast was started on was this question I always had about REM, which was the first time they played in the church. I really wondered whether those four guys who'd been in other bands and everything, if the first moment they looked at each other and knew, holy shit, this is totally different. I've gotten to ask um, two of those, four of them. What'd they say? Uh, yeah, Mills knew, but you know, Buck is very, have you met Peter? Buck's very analytical. And so yeah, right. Buck knew these elements were kind of together, right. but yeah, Mills said he looked around and he was kind of like, oh, holy shit, this is, yeah. you know, this yeah. is special. Cause he, that, you know, he went and got Bill Barry to, and I was like, we should do this thing with these two right. guys. Um, right. Like he sensed that there was something about Peter and my and Michael. Right. Um, but when you and Evan first played a scene together, did you have like a, oh fuck, moment at all? It was actually an auditioning because, uh, you know, I got to audition the uh, everybody else who was cast and Evan came in and he, he just did, you know, and I, I could give a fuck about line readings, but he just, he, he, he did a line in a way that I just. I never would, heard this is great. Really? Yeah. And, and, and in the script, uh, you know, he's my agent and, and I'm, you know, not working. I have no money. And he says, it, it's written, I have an offer for you. And, I, and then we have the scene or whatever. And he goes, I have an offer for you or something like that. <laughs> the most. Jewish, you know, New York Jewish. And, yes. and I was, just, I, I started laughing. We finished, Evan left and Tom and I both looked at each other and we were like that line. And we still for 20 years, I don't know how many years later it is. We'll still go that line. He just, if you, if you say to an actor, you don't want to put too much pressure on them, but then you say, here's an example of a guy who got himself a seven year job with one fucking line. You know? But it's true. Sometimes yeah. somebody comes in and they just wreck you and you're just like, well, that's that. It's well, over. Well, it's because in the end, it's not a line reading. In the end, it was like, it, 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 that was the character in a nutshell. It was like, that was the whole, he just got the character, put it in that line and we saw it and it was like, he never let go of that. I, yeah, I love watching all sorts of friendships on screen. It's just something I'm always drawn to. And like that particular dynamic of the two of you which isn't like a traditional friendship, but that dynamic of the two of you was something that really mattered to me on that on that show. Right. You know, it was very. Yeah, I, I always loved working with him, and I'm not sure I can say why. I mean, I don't say that to try to be funny or anything. Um, it's Evan. He's very brave. I mean, in his own his own his own way. I mean, like he was he was always willing to tell the truth. I thought. You know, he was always willing to tell the truth. I really love that about him. There's no vanity and there's, he no. he may have vanity, uh, but there's, there is yes. no vanity in the way he plays those scenes. No. no. And it's no. so appealing, right? Because there isn't that. Um, even though he's a theater actor, you know, I've, I've spent time with him a little bit. I could see he's fully aware of what he's sacrificing yes. to do yes. that. Yes. 
<laughs> and yet he's willing to sacrifice it. Yes. Which goes yes. back to the team thing. Yeah. Uh, here's another uh, thing I, I want to ask you, because you, you did get to live one thing, I think, that I'm, I've, I've, I got to spend one day in my life with Harold Bloom. Ah. It was really incredible to get to spend. I spent like three hours with him at his, at his I was trying to write an, an article about Quentin, um, about being a filmmaker in the shadow of Quentin after Pulp Fiction and about, and I called it the anxiety of Tarantino. And I really wanted to understand the anxiety of influence. And so I read the, you know, I read anxiety of influence and I read the other shit. And as you know, it's still fucking hard to understand. And, um, because he changes his terminology all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, his whole, the whole idea of misreading is like totally yeah. mind boggling. Yeah. So I wrote him a letter and I was like, professor, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do. Can we, and he's like, yeah, come to my house. So I went to the, the house on, on, um, on Washington Square Park. You know, we had that one on, on Washington Square Park and I went over there and spent three hours. You know, we had a young grad assistant with him, the whole deal. And he sat back, he reclined and he talked. Yeah. But, my dear, my dear. Oh my God, the whole thing it was just, it was, you know, we'll see if Tarantino himself is canonical down the road, <laughs> the whole thing. It was just fantastic. Right. I came away understanding this much more. And so what did you get out of interacting with that guy? And, and how did it shape the way you looked at reading and, uh, and, and writing and making art? Because to get to your album, you know, I think the, 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 it's funny, I was listening today and I was hearing these influences and, and really digging it. And I heard everything from obviously like the Stones influences, but also I was hearing like Dean Warham in there and stuff, Luna. I was hearing all this shit that you and I would have grown up listening to. But I was thinking about influence and then it got back to Bloom. So what did you get from from him? And okay. has well, it had a lasting impact? Yeah, well, I can answer that in two ways. I mean, the first one is very utilitarian because it was in Bloom's class that he said, he, he, no, it wasn't in class. It was in a book later after I was out of school, but I was always interested in Bloom because I'd, I'd watched him. And, and once you met him, I mean, he's really a, a singular intellect, right? I mean, it's just, I just, his, his brain just had all of literature. I mean, all of it. I, I really do. I don't think there was anything he hadn't read. I, I don't think so. And he had a photographic memory too, supposedly. So he not only read stuff, but it was in there. It was in there. And he wrote a book called The American Religion, in which he called uh, Joseph Smith a, a religious genius. Right. And I was like, wow, genius, really? Joseph Mormonism? And so that really sent me off into the area that became truly like lightning. So that's just one very you know, obvious way that boom. Yes. Not meaning to influence me, but but because I respected his vision so thoroughly, like to perk up and go, well, what is it about? And we were talking about Emerson, and there's something very much Emersonian in Joseph Smith, in this American religion, in this kind of, you know, we're all gods. This is a God-making project. We're well, in a, in a way that uh, Hucksterism intersects with em Emerson, perhaps. Perhaps. Really? Perhaps. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah. I mean, Emerson is, is probably a huckster too. You know, he's just a really good one. And he's, he's, he's a better huckster in the sense that if you listen to him and you buy what he's selling, you actually have a chance at a good life too. You're not just going to get a shitty bill of goods, you know? Yes. So, um, but the anxiety of influence, and, and I would bring it back to your Tarantino stuff, 
which, I mean, to me, when I, and I think Tarantino is like the, uh, he's the equivalent of like a bloom uh, in that I believe Tarantino has seen everything. He's seen it all. Yeah, he's seen it all. And I believe that he suffers himself from an anxiety of influence. We just don't know it because we don't know the movies that he's trying to write himself out from under as well as he does. So I, I, I would say he's not sui generis, and this is not to slag him at all, love him the best, but I would say that he is a person who is a, he's a misreader of film. He's a brilliant misreader of films that came before him. So- Yeah, well, that's that, a question of, you know, how, how, how original work surfaces in these, mediums and it's why like rock and roll in particular is so challenging because i was with some kids and they were recently my son and daughter have this you know really smart eclectic group of friends, like, group of friends. Yeah. and i'm i'm in some chat groups with some of them and something came up and they were like well that uh totally rips off brian wilson's <laughs> stuff yeah. the beach boys and i literally said so in this chat group, raise your hand if you've actually gone back and listened to Chuck Berry. And they, nobody had really. It, and I understand why, by the way, 60 yeah. years ago at this point, you yeah. know, 70 years ago or whatever. Uh, I said, well, you gotta go listen to Sweet Little 16 because the entire Beach Boys thing came from Sweet Little 16. And they, you, you have to go to there to start to unpack what all this is. But right. This is one of the challenges of trying to create stuff now, isn't it? Like picking up a guitar. I mean, how do you not feel all that when you pick up a guitar and make the decision you're not only doing it for yourself? And, and you know, my, my, my guitar is right right here, so I, I understand all this. But but how do you uh, how do you pick up the guitar with, without knowing these chords and these ideas are almost no matter what, not gonna be fully original. original. Yeah. Um, doesn't bother me with music. Um, I never had the ambition to to be an original in that way. I was untutored enough. I didn't start playing till like ten years ago, so that I had zero ambition to be a great player or to to even write a song. So I walked into it completely Zen mind, beginner's mind. Awesome. I had no anxiety of influence because I didn't think I was doing anything of you know that anybody was going to ever hear. So it was, it was not like that at all. It was actually the opposite of anything else I'd ever done. It was the influence that I had was in my ear. I didn't know how to recreate it on the guitar. You know, I didn't know how to do it on the guitar. And by the time I started writing. I was beyond that. I was, it was all new to me. I didn't, I mean, I can, I'll look back now and you could play me stuff and, and I'll go, well, that's, you know, that chord progression is from there and that's from there. And I go, I, I probably, I've heard that. Yeah, I probably, yeah. I didn't really well, no, it's all me. I mean, honestly, there's almost no, I mean, it's very, very difficult for anybody. I mean, even Lord puts out an album and they're trying to, who's one of the more original artists of our day. And they're, everyone's trying to pick apart the influences on her third record. So it's, but it, but I do, it, 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 it it is often challenging. So, so what is the impetus for you to release? Uh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're very, you're, you're clearly, uh, you know, I can't believe you've only been doing this 10 years. Like you're clearly excellent at it, but what is it that 
makes you want to share the music? What's the part of you that needs that final piece of it? Do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't know about the need. I think it was. It's. It's always been for me. It's been a game of like expression and which. How am I going to get that out? Whatever it is, whatever it is inside me. I don't know. It doesn't have a word on it. It's got feelings, whatever. But it like there. There's acting jobs that I can that I can use yeah. good press through that, and then I can I can write. I I, I that's probably my 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 most uh, fundamental mode of expression because I've been doing it forever. I've been writing forever and I went to school for it. So, of course. but, but I didn't start really doing that till more recently. And then like music was actually, it's, it's very, it's, it's interesting that we're here now because, because it was really, it was really a place where there was no anxiety of influence. Like for, for actors, like, look, we're all coming out of Marlon Brando period. Yeah. Period. Like, it's like a guitarist Hendrix, period, period, after Chuck Berry, okay, but Hendrix, period. And I didn't do de- I didn't deal with Hendrix because I didn't I wasn't going to battle with him. I never I never felt like I was like gonna stand on a mountaintop and, and make a deal with the devil and you know all that shit. So maybe as a writer as I, I did, maybe as an actor I wanted I dreamt of being, you know, better sure. than Brandon. Maybe as a writer I dreamt of being better than Philip Roth, but as a musician, no, none of that. It was just like, it was just. Right, it was pure. So that's very pure sort of way to go at it, actually. There was very little ego. There was no ego is what I'm saying, too. Yeah. And then it's hard when you when you start to want. Yeah, it, it changes, it changes. One of the other things I've always wondered about with, with you, and, and try not to be too self-effacing in this answer, but is like, it does seem there's this dichotomy, and I've picked this up also from Amy in talking to you, but like on the one hand, you know, it seems to me, you, you understand that there were certain gifts that you were just born with. Your capacity for reasoning, synthesizing information, analyzing shit, and, and but it's and it seems like you're sometimes that there are times and then on top of that you decided to work incredibly hard to become successful but it does seem to me that you sometimes wrestle with both sides of it the guilt uh, there, there's some guilt associated with this tremendous capacity to do things and be good at them and being as smart as smart as you are but also uh a, a need to prove to yourself that you haven't wasted it and that you've maximized it is that yeah. fair yeah, I think so. Um, I never, I don't think I ever really knew what, what I had. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I never, like, on the inside, I, I never felt like I was on top or, you know, stuff was easy for me. I actually had, a, you know, my baseball coach in high school used to, it was often like I, I, I had, I couldn't play well enough because he really thought that I was, so good and I, I i kept on trying to tell him that i wasn't that i wasn't like falling short all the time because that's what it felt like is like, yeah and um I, I i don't know it just it really it comes back to the same old thing about um just you know there are these sweet moments in life where you 
where you do get to create something that feels new. You know, it doesn't have to, in, in the final analysis, it may not pass, it may not be canonical, you know, as Lou said, but it sure feels that way on, on that Tuesday, you well, know. And, yes. and I live for that. I live for that moment. You know? are, are you a Murakami fan or not a Murakami fan? I'm not, but I'm going to read that book that you, you, you suggested. And I wanted to bring up one more author that I'm sure you yeah. love. Is William Blake. I don't know if you've read Oh, I've read a bunch of William Blake, but not for a long time. But yes, I'm totally, uh, I, I'm a, yeah. a fan of William Blake's and he's, I've, I have some books that I've been meaning to read again. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so have you read none? No. Have you never read um, uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by no. Murakami? No. It's, it's a very, sh oh, David, right. you're going to lose your mind, dude. It's like the most ready right. for you book. Yeah. It's not, it's kind of, he's written a couple nonfiction things, but this is like his running memoir, but it's really his memoir of being an artist. And he's my favorite living writer. Uh, what I talk about when I talk about running, for your next plane ride, you'll read it in an hour and a half, but it'll it'll hit you very hard. All right, just a couple more things and we're gonna be done. Um, one, what does it feel like for you when, uh, like you have to deal with rejection in the business, like a show doesn't get picked yeah. up? Or whatever yeah. it drives me at this point. I even I'm like, and I haven't had, you know, I've, I've had a, obviously an incredibly lucky, fortunate career compared to 100 percent right. of people who try. But uh, if I have a script or I have a project that I can see yeah. what it'll be, and the gatekeepers don't get it, it yeah. drives me fucking insane because yeah. I'm like, haven't I proven it now? 25 years later, that in fact. If I'm sure of it, you should just give me the money to make the thing. I'm not trying yeah. to I'm not trying to get you to pay me in advance. It's gonna, I just want, give me the money to go make the thing and you're yeah. gonna be happy. I've yeah. shown you that. Yeah. But for you, you've shown it in such a huge level. How do you deal with it? Like actually, how do you process it and how do you react to them? Two ways. The The darker way is I sit back and I go, you know, they're right. I suck. I, oh. you know, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I really don't have it. Uh, yeah, they're probably right. They're probably right. Yeah. It's, it's all smoke and mirrors anyway. So, so it's, it's a little of that. And the other, and the other part is really just sadness. I don't get angry because I feel like I've had so much success and yeah. so much ease that like, I wish I could get angry because I, I really do have that. I have that intensity of belief. I, I, I do agree with you when I have that feeling. It's like, I'm 100% sure yes. that this was going to be great. I, I, I don't have any doubts. This is going to be fantastic. And you're not doing it. And you've given me a couple of reasons that I know don't come into play. Yeah, they're but, specious. Yeah. But, yeah. but they do to you. But they do to you. And um, I guess I wish I was that righteous guy that was like, I wish I was hungry. If I was hungry. I'd yeah. probably get angry if I if I had if I didn't have a penny and I was just starting out and I had this thing that I knew was great because you're not you're not promised ten great ideas you get one you're lucky yeah man three you're 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 amazing whatever so if I was 25 and I had this thing and I was like fuck it you know I don't know what I'd do I I, I don't know I don't know what I that I take that note. I don't know how I take. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. But now I'm a little. I get sad. I get a little defeated, and then I just go, "Well, I'm just going to keep on pushing that particular thing. Somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to do it." 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's all different ways. I try not to get angry too. I try to just, um, but part of me still goes like, eh, you'll see. I do <laughs> still have a little of the you'll see in me, I think, where it's just like. Nothing wrong with a little you'll see. You know, you'll see. What, uh, what, okay, what books have you been wrong? Because you're such a great reader and I'll get recommendations through, you know, you're such a great reader. Like for instance, and two, two related questions. What books have you been wrong about and, and which do you wish you'd loved more? Like I wish that I loved a fan's note and a confederacy of a confederacy of dunces more like i don't love those books i want to love them everyone i like loves them like what do you wish you loved more uh i along those lines i say like david foster wallace's novels i, right. I feel like one of the great writers but i, I actually prefer his essays to his yeah, novels i understand that um and then um what was i wrong about yeah is there ever a book you read and then you came back to it years later and you were like Oh, that was great. Oh, it's great. Um, or you know what I mean? Maybe not. Yeah. There, there's a couple. There's a couple books. Well, I think Moby Dick. I, no, Moby Dick is my answer. Yes, that's my answer. That's my answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think Moby Dick. Yeah, dude, I couldn't fucking read it in college, and over pandemic, I read it, and I was just like, "This is the best <laughs> book there is." Oh, no. And it's not a lie. Like it's not a hype thing. No. Like if you're at the right place. Oh, because it's actually known as the best book there is. <laughs> yes, but, but it's not. Yes, but like, you know, most, most people don't. I mean, you know, nobody's read that. I mean, nobody reads that. Nobody's read the book, really. Well, like, the whaling stuff turns them off, you know. Yeah, but it's so great. The writing is so fucking amazing. All right, people, if you're listening to this, here's what you got out of this. Go listen to David Duchovny's album. <laughs> uh, uh, Gesture. What's it called? Ge Gesture Land. Gesture Land. Go listen to Gesture Land and... And, and read Moby Dick. I know it sounds, <laughs> listen, I know that it sounds like a terrible assignment, but like 30 pages in, you're gonna be laughing and smiling and totally swept away, right? And it's also, it's contemporary. I mean, it's all yeah. about, it's about, it's about race. It's about, it's about America. It's about- It's about, it's about class, social structure. It's about um, all that stuff. And also, uh, even though Hemingway, some people think is falling a favor, there's a reason that when David said, old man, the sea, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And even though it's a parable and a simple parable, it's also worth reading. Um, David Duchovny, thanks for doing this, man. This was really fun. Well, Brian, this is the first of our conversations, the last one that will be taped, and I hope that we uh, we pursue our friendship. Uh, we will. Well, and, uh, we've been. I mean, Amy's been. Amy, Amy has been promising that we would love this conversation <laughs> as much as we have. So, all right, man, I'll talk to you. Be well. All right, Take bye. care. Bye. Thanks.